you're listening to the Trinity Podcast. We are a multi-site church in the Chicago area whose mission is to help you look, live, and love more like Jesus. So 2015 was a landmark year for our country because it was in 2015 that the case Obergefell versus Hodges was argued before the Supreme Court. The question on the table was, do same-sex couples have the same right to marriage as heterosexual couples? And in the 5-4 ruling, the justices required in all 50 states and the District of Columbia that they were required to perform and recognize the marriages of same-sex couples on the same terms and conditions as the marriages of opposite-sex couples. This had been a debate that had been going on in our country for years, and in many ways, it was a a huge turning point in how we defined marriage and who is uh, given the rights and the protections under that terminology. But what many of us don't know is the backstory that led to that case. It goes back to 2011 where a man by the name of Jim Obergefell's longtime partner, John Arthur, was diagnosed with ALS. In 2013, Obergefell and Arthur were legally married in the state of Maryland. However, they had moved to Ohio. And after meeting with an attorney, they were told that under Ohio's same-sex marriage ban, Obergefell could not be listed as Arthur's surviving spouse on his death certificate. And so Jim Obergefell sued the state, and it was that case and several others that came before the Supreme Court in 2015. And it was really during that entire period as this case was moving up through the courts that this phrase, love is love, came to the forefront of our national consciousness. It came up as supporters of same-sex marriage argued that Two consenting adults, if they love each other, should be allowed to get married. They should have the same protections under the law that heterosexual couples do. That was the whole premise behind the statement, love is love. And so being that we're in a series where we're starting to address a lot of these statements, that's what we're going to be talking about this weekend. Now, this debate isn't new in the church. We've been talking about it as long as our wider culture has. And typically when we've talked about it in the church, the debate is really centered around questions of sexuality and sexual identity. And certainly those two issues are huge issues, and the Bible has a lot to say about them. Furthermore, there are a lot of resources out there to address this issue. In fact, back in 2021, we did an entire series called Messy Grace that talked about what our theological views are around sex and sexuality and sexual identity. And there are a lot of books out there as well. One of the ones that I would highly encourage you to check out is a book called People to be Loved, Why Homosexuality is Not Just an Issue. It's written by Preston Sprinkle in which he walks through the Bible and says, what does the Bible actually teach us theologically about sexuality and sexual identity and what are the implications for us as a church? But this weekend, I want to take a different approach to this conversation. Because there's another side to this discussion which often isn't brought up when we make this conversation strictly about sexuality and sexual identity. It was actually a subject that was brought to my attention as I listened to a YouTube conversation in which an author by the name of Justin Lee talked about the tensions that he has talking about 
same-sex attraction and what it means to be a gay person within the church. And what you need to know about Justin is that he is a gay man. He's also a Christian, but he believes that there's room to affirm same-sex marriage. And he was talking a little bit about his views, and this is what he said that really stood out to me. He said, one of the frustrations that many people in the LGBTQ community have with the church is a lack of empathy. That we have this conversation, and it's a very heady theological conversation, but it is not a real lived experience conversation. Over and over again, the conversation ends up being about sexual morality and what God wants for us sexually. But the big question we're asking is about companionship and love and who cares for us when we get sick, and the deep grief that comes with someone saying, you have to be alone. See, Justin says that the real issue here isn't ultimately about sex. It's about companionship. Uh, Having people in your life who know you, who love you, who are going to care for you in your old age. And he says, and when we reduce this conversation strictly down to talking about sexuality and sexual identity, we're actually missing the deeper heart cry of many people in the LGBTQ community when it comes to life in the church and what the church teaches about marriage. And this is part of the reason why, among many other reasons, Justin has arrived at the conclusion that there must be room for affirming same-sex marriage within the church. But see, what lies behind that really is an assumption, an assumption that goes back to another question. The question is this, is marriage the solution for human loneliness? Justin believes that it is. So the question is, is that really our answer as well? And to help us kind of get into this, I want us to actually talk about what it is we've come to believe as a wider culture that kind of makes this a difficult conversation for us to really reframe. And it actually all goes back, in my opinion, to a 1996 movie starring Tom Cruise. The movie I'm talking about is the film Jerry Maguire. Now, if you've not watched Jerry Maguire, it's the story of a sports agent played by Tom Cruise. His name is Jerry, and what he does is in a crisis of conscience, he actually leaves his large uh, sports agency because of the fact that he felt it had gotten too impersonal. He wanted to Uh, approach his clients in a very different way, uh, a a way that was more relational, more care-centered. And the only person who ends up leaving the firm with him is his assistant, played by uh, Renee Zellweger. And one of the things that's interesting in the story is that uh, as as it progresses, there's a lot of comedy and lightheartedness, but there's also no small amount of romance. Jerry and his assistant end up getting married, but one of the questions that comes up during the movie is, is this a marriage of convenience or truly a marriage of love? And in the climactic scene, in a moment when their marriage is on the rocks, Jerry actually ends up leaving this incredibly important moment in his career to go home. And he comes running into the living room where Renee Zellweger is standing there and and he starts to just pour out his heart to her. And and as, as he gets to the end of it, he delivers this line. He says, I love you, you complete me. And she looks into his eyes and she says, shut up, you had me at hello. And everybody else in the scene in that living room goes, aw, And the rest of our culture looked at that scene and goes, oh, and I have to wonder, is that true? 
is it true that God has designed our world in such a way that the only way we're really going to find completeness is by finding that perfect other person? You see, that's really at the heart of, of what he's saying. He's saying, you are the one who completes me, that even if I have all the other successes that this world has to offer, it means nothing if I don't have you. And we live in a society that seems to be built on this very ideology. I actually don't really blame the film Jerry Maguire because really what I think was being articulated there is an assumption that we actually hold in Western America, an assumption that we've held for a very long time. And that is that out there in the world somewhere is our soulmate is the person who completes us, the one that, that we have to find in order to live a full human life, to truly experience deep intimacy, to be fully known and truly loved, we have to find the one. And I think that many people in the church today have actually been influenced by this very ideology. Here's what I mean. When I was in college, I worked in family Christian bookstores. Now, they're totally out of business now, but one of the things I found funny when I would go through and kind of restock our shelves is when I would get to the Christian fiction section, because overwhelmingly, there were two subjects that were constantly kind of the, 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 the singular thread or idea that was behind all these books. All the Christian fiction books either fell into the camp of, of apocalyptic literature, like the world is falling apart and judgment is coming, or they fell in the realm of romance. There were tons and tons and tons of books about love and finding the one. And although family Christian uh, bookstores are out of business, I went to christianbook.com and simply looked in their fiction section. And the top three bestsellers were these three books. Every single one of them is about romance. You see, the answer for far too many uh, Christians to the question, is marriage the answer to human loneliness, is a resounding yes. And over and over again, we talk about the value of marriage and, and finding your spouse and building a healthy, God-centered marriage. Now, while that is important, it bears within it some problems, you see, if the answer to human loneliness is that we simply have to get married, that we have to find the one who completes us, it brings with it a whole nother set of issues. Because if that's true, then what do we say to the single person? If that's true, what do we say to the person who's gone through a divorce or who's widowed? What do we say to those men and women who find themselves without the one, or whose marriages have fallen apart? Does it mean that they're now doomed to a life of loneliness? Does it mean that they have no hope of really being fully known and truly loved? You see, if marriage is the answer, it, it creates a, a whole host of issues for a lot of people who aren't married in the church. But I would also argue it creates a whole set of issues for people who are married. Here's what I mean. There are far too many marriages that are struggling under the weight of an expectation they were never meant to bear. 
Because you see, if I'm not going to truly be deeply satisfied and fully fulfilled until I find the perfect person, what that means is that I place all of my relational expectations squarely on the shoulders of my spouse. It's an almost God-sized expectation that no human being, however wonderful they might be, could possibly fulfill. You see, the reality is, is my wife is a wonderful gift, but she is a terrible God. And far too many of our marriages are struggling under the weights of these expectations that they were never designed to meet. See, marriage is, is a good gift that God gives us. It does have a particular purpose, but when we place this kind of expectation on it, it, it does nothing more than crushes our spouse and leaves us heartbroken with unfulfilled longings. So when Justin Lee talks about this idea of needing to, to ultimately affirm same-sex marriage because that's how people are going to truly be fully known and truly loved, he's, he's building it on this assumption that we've had as a society for a long time that is more formed and discipled by the NJMV, the new Jerry Maguire version of human relationships than actually by looking at the words of Jesus. So what does Jesus say? How would Jesus answer the question, is marriage the answer to human loneliness? I think if we actually go to the teachings of Jesus, what we find is something incredibly surprising, almost shocking. Here's what I mean. I want to look at Matthew chapter 22 for just a moment. In Matthew 22, Jesus is presented with a theological dilemma around marriage. There are a bunch of uh, teachers in his day who come up to him and ask him about marriage and, and remarriage. And they kind of give him this hypothetical situation. They say, so say a woman is married and her husband dies. And so she remarries another man and he dies. And then she remarries another man and he dies and so on and so forth. When, when she is resurrected in eternal life, whose wife will she be? And this is Jesus' response. He said, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. You see, Jesus lived in a culture that idolized marriage. It was assumed that you were going to get married. And that single people were often looked down upon as less than people who maybe had been cursed or overlooked by God because marriage was so central. But Jesus says, in God's grand plan, you are asking the wrong question and looking in the wrong place if you're truly to understand what God is building. You see, in the grand narrative, while the story starts with a couple in the garden, where it ultimately ends is with a family in the city. See, what Jesus says is he says, you need to understand that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God's promise to the patriarchs was that he would build a family made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that it would be in this family where we would find true satisfaction. It would be in this family where we would truly be known and truly loved. It would be this family that would satisfy our deepest relational longings and desires. You see, when Jesus talks about relational fulfillment, he doesn't talk about marriage. 
he talks about family. In fact, at one point, his mother and his brothers come looking for him, and they're trying to get through the crowds to find him. And one of his disciples comes up and says, hey, your, your mother and your brothers are looking for you. And Jesus says this. Then Jesus looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. See, over and over again, Jesus talks about family the family of the church, the family of his followers, the family of his disciples. He says that this is the community. These are the relationships that were ultimately designed for. And in fact, the only time where Jesus uses marriage imagery is in talking about himself. At one point when some of the teachers of the law ask him why he and his disciples don't fast, Jesus says this. He says, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he was with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Likewise, John the Baptist, when he's asked, why isn't that Jesus' ministry is growing and yours is declining? Shouldn't something change here? He responds with these words. He says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. John says, Jesus is the bridegroom. The people are his. See, over and over again, when marriage imagery is used by Jesus, it's talking about himself. He says, the deepest longings of your heart will never be satisfied ultimately in a human relationship. They're only going to be satisfied in a relationship with me. But where you experience community, where you experience that love, is ultimately in the community that I'm building. I think it's said best by St. Augustine, who wrote this in his Confessions. He says, Our hearts are restless, Lord, until they find their rest in thee. Jesus says, If you want to be deeply loved, you need to know me first. But where you begin to experience that relational wholeness is actually found in the family that I've created for you. You know, oftentimes at weddings, we cite 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's a passage that says, love is patient and love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. We read that at weddings because we're like, this is what marital love is all about, but we forget that wasn't written to a married couple. That wasn't written to a husband and wife. That was written to a church. That was written to the family of faith. And one of the things that the, that the writers of the New Testament over and over again emphasize to the church is they say, you all, as this family, you are to be the ones who give love to each other. I love how John puts it in 1 John chapter 4. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not know love doesn't know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. 
He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. You see, the answer to human loneliness is to experience the love of Jesus encountered through his body, the church. Let me say that again. The answer to human loneliness is to experience the love of Jesus embodied in the life of the church. That's exactly what John is saying. He's saying we are loved extravagantly by the God who made us. He is the one in whom the deepest longings of our hearts will be satisfied. But where that love is experienced is in the family that he's invited us into. You have a God who loves you. And he's called you to be a part of a family in which you are welcome, in which you can be truly known and fully loved. And when we experience that, it brings a kind of joy that's just beyond being able to put into words. A kind of of joy that breaks through the darkness of loneliness and lets us know that we are seen by God when we are loved in the context of the community that he's invited us to be a part of. One of my favorite stories recently was told by a member of our congregation named Ken. And Ken was going through his own kind of dark valley of the soul. He found himself in a hospital bed, wondering, is anybody know what's going on in my life? Is anyone going to be here to care for me? And what's so beautiful is that it's in that moment that the church showed up. I want you to hear his story in his own words. I ended up going to the hospital while I was going to this Bible class. And I told him I was there. And I told him, I said, you know, guys, I'm going to take communion. So a couple of the guys told me, all right, we'll make sure that you get your communion taken care of. It took a little while. But then they all, every one of them, came to visit me in the hospital. Shocked me. I know one of the guys came at least four times while I was in there. Another one came a couple of times. And all the rest of them did come. And they had prayers with me, prayed and everything. And I never had anything like this in my life. And when they walk in the room, I'm so happy. Because all I was doing there was taking up space I don't have a lot of friends. I started working young. Now I think I got more friends. And they treat me so wonderfully. I came back, I I missed Bible class for a little while. And I said, you know something? I'm missing so much of this. I says, you know, I don't care. I gotta go back. I enjoy it so much and they're so All of them are so friendly. And once in a while, outside of the church, we do get together. And we went to two fellows' homes so far. It started out, uh, we had a little Bible class, but then sat around and just talked and had a couple of beers, which we shouldn't be doing, but we do. (laughs) You can leave that in there if you want or not. It's so enjoyable. Uh, 
I look forward to it. And it's not a group for old people. We have more younger people in it than we have old people in it. I consider myself an old man, but uh, they don't consider it. They don't. They treat me like I got a couple of them. Sometimes I think they're my fathers. They treat me so good. So, and I love them all. What an amazing story. For Ken to say, I had, didn't know if I had friends, and now I've got, I've got so many friends. To know that he's got a family that cares about him and that's going to show up in his time of need, that that was actually the answer to loneliness for him was found in the family of the church. And I think our calling when we're talking about this subject of, God is lo- of love is love is to remember that ultimately God is love and we're his family. But too often in the church, the the message that we've given people is that you need to believe and then behave and then you can belong. But when we look at it through the eyes of Jesus, what we see is the way he designed us is that we would be a, a place, a community where you belong so that you might believe and so that you might behave more and more like Jesus. That in a society that's pointing us to find love in all the wrong places. We can say God is love and we are his family. And the encouragement to us is to get into community, to live out that calling as a family of faith and care for one another in the midst of our needs with the same kind of love and grace that God has given to us. This is why we emphasize getting into small group communities. This is why we talk about sharing our lives with one another because we know that that is God's answer to a very lonely and hurting world. And my prayer for us is that we would know that in greater and greater measure. Let's pray. Lord God, we love the fact that you are love. That in a society that's looking for love in all the wrong places, you remind us that you love us extravagantly. And you've given us a family where we can be truly known and deeply loved. And Lord, my prayer for us as a church is that we would reclaim that calling. That we would help people see that the real answer to human loneliness isn't going to be found in one individual person. It's going to be found in you and experienced in the context of your family. Help us to become a kind of people that welcomes people extravagantly that invites them to walk with you as the one who alone can, desi- can satisfy the deepest desires and longings of their heart, and where we would increasingly look, live, and love more like you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Trinity Podcast. We hope this week's message encouraged you to consider the claims of Jesus in a new way, and we would love to have you join us for worship on the weekend. To find a location near you, visit www.tlc4u.org.